Welcome to the Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Jim Hempill. I'm a crafts reporter at IndieWire, and I'm delighted that for my inaugural episode as a host on Toolkit, I was able to speak with Danny McBride, the creator, co-star, and sometimes director of one of the best shows on TV, HBO's The Righteous Gemstones. The Righteous Gemstones is McBride's third series for HBO, following Eastbound and Down and Vice Principals. And in my opinion, it's not only the funniest of those shows, but the most conceptually and visually ambitious. McBride and his fellow directors, David Gordon Green and Jody Hill really give this show about a dysfunctional family of televangelists sweep and scope and scale. It's kind of like an 80s primetime soap opera like Dallas or Dynasty, reimagined as a raucous satire, with a bit of wry Elmore Leonard crime comedy thrown in. I wanted to talk to Danny McBride because I feel like a lot of comedies don't take full advantage of all the tools of filmmaking that they can to enhance and add dimension to their jokes and gags, but Gemstones really knows how a properly placed camera can make something twice as funny as it would have been if it was shot in a more conventional manner. We talked about this, especially as it relates to the presentation of violence on the series, and we talked about a lot of other stuff too, how to make a comedy about faith that doesn't mock it, how Danny communicates his vision to his crew, and how he makes his casting choices, and a whole lot more. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. For your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Drama Series, the HBO original series The Gilded Age is set in 1882 New York City against the backdrop of the transformative American Gilded Age, a period of immense economic change, of great conflict between the old ways and brand new systems, and of huge fortunes made and lost. From the creator of Downton Abbey, the drama series ensemble includes Christine Baranski, Carrie Coon, Cynthia Nixon, and Morgan Spector, immersed in a world on the brink of the modern age embroiled in a social war between old and new money. All episodes now streaming on HBO Max. So, Danny, one of the things that I really love about Righteous Gemstones is this kind of unique tone that you've created where it's, you know, it's definitely a comedy, but it's also this kind of family epic like Dynasty. And it's also a crime show and it's satirical, but you're not making fun of religion or people's religious beliefs, I don't think. And it's just it's such a I can't really think of anything else like it. Sometimes it's genuinely kind of poignant in terms of the family relationships. And I guess I'm curious what your thinking was going into this show in terms of what kind of show you wanted it to be and how did you communicate that to your department heads when you were directing the pilot? You know, uh, it's crazy. It's like I spent a lot of time outlining, trying to figure out what I want to write, what I want it to be. And then the moment I usually start writing, it all just goes out the window and it all becomes something <laughs> entirely different. And so that was the same thing with Gemstones is that, you know, that tone that we end up settling on, you know, I don't think it was a tone that we set out of the gate to sort of like accomplish. I think it was sort of like as we got to figure out who these characters were and and what they acted like, behaved like, it started to sort of like inspire us to kind of see where these characters could take us and, you know, what you could do. And, uh, you know, I've been lucky in the sense that I've worked with a lot of these people I collaborate with on Vice Principals from, you know, Sarah Tross in those first few seasons on, she was on the pilot of Gemstones and Richard Wright, my production designer, and even to Joey Stevens and DeVoe Yates, who I do the, the music with, and the directors, Jody Hill and David Green. And I think we all sort of understand, we have a shorthand creatively of what inspires us or, or what we gravitate towards. And so that's like kind of part of what's fun about it is like, I'll, we'll create this script. And then it really is sort of sitting down with these other artists and kind of figuring out like, what do we want to make? Like, what weird idea do you have that's not in here? That's not what we would have imagined. And like, how can we just find ways to make sure that all of us get our fingerprints on this and that it's something that keeps all of us excited and having fun. And uh, yeah, that's, and then it kind of just 
becomes it. It really just kind of, it, it, we, we, a lot of times I'll look back after we've finished writing, making a season and I'll look back to some of those initial ideas and they're in there, but it's like the way it all sort of works, it'll, you know, it surprises us. I think that's what makes it fun writing it is that you're not sure what could happen, you know, just like, I guess the experience the audience could have as well. Well, and even the writing seems like there are a lot of surprises for you. I was surprised you know, in preparing for this, I was researching the background of the show, and I was surprised to read that originally the Gemstone family were the villains, basically, in a kind of totally different show. I mean, what was the initial concept that you had for this, and how did you evolve into what you ended up with now? You know, the initial idea, you know, I worked with Edie Patterson on uh, Vice Principals and really just kind of like really loved working with her. I thought she was so funny and had such a distinct voice and would make me crack up the whole time. So I really wanted to try to do something that'd be fun to do with her, like a kind of a two-hander. So the initial concept was sort of like I was just a minister that I was of a regular, you know, of a, of a regular sized church that had an affair and I was being blackmailed by a megachurch family that like wanted to move in on my turf. And Edie was going to play the preacher's wife who like, you know, there's all this marital problems between us and you know and it was just going to be like how we both have to kind of join together to go up against this powerful church that's trying to take the little bit that we have i don't know it just kind of felt boring like every time i had to write scenes between me and Edie, it just felt like i don't think like marital problems is like exactly what i want to be mining with Edie. like i feel like she's capable of so much more than that and even for me it was sort of like you're already dealing with the show about a minister like i just don't want to make it too wholesome i don't want to make him somebody that just feels soft and not interesting you know and so as I was kind of messing around with that, I just found that the gemstones were just so much easier to write. They were like the show felt like it came alive when they would show up on this guy's doorstep and and strong arm them and stuff. And, it, and then it just made me kind of look at it like, what if the show was them? Like, what if it's a megachurch family? It's not the small preacher. And what if it is that they operate like a crime syndicate and they use these sort of gangster ways to sort of like run their business? And and then it, the, the idea then just like started to really come alive. Like everything started to populate. Like I had a hard time figuring out who characters were in the other version. And then here they just started appearing. I like, so I, I kind of like knew who everybody was and even the style of the church. It just felt like a more interesting world to explore than something that was more traditional. Well, the sense of detail in that world of megachurches, both just in the writing and in the production design and everything else, it's really fantastic. I mean, I feel like it's so convincing, this world that they live in. And I'm curious, where did you learn how much of that comes from research and how much is kind of from your imagination? Because it's very, very convincing. You know, it's a combination of both. You know, you talked earlier about how, like, you know, we weren't really wanting this show to, like, make fun of people's religion or make fun of what people believe in. And so that's always been something that, we talked about the whole time is that like, listen, this isn't the joke is never that people go to church, you know, like that's never the joke. The joke is that these people go to church and this is what they do. You know, like that's the that's where we mine our comedy, not from like, I can't believe what these people believe, you know. So I think when you approach it that way and you're not using religion as the butt of the joke, you're using it as a way to ground the story. You know, it's like I want the audience to watch this and be like, oh, I kind of recognize that. I've seen that in my world. And is this what happens there? And so finding the details from like what the music is like there, what it looks like, even down to like how some of these megachurches will like, they'll sort of like remove biblical symbols like crosses or something because that might 
turn somebody off or be too churchy, you know? And so even down to the gemstone logo, it's a cross, but not really, you know, it's like more almost like, you know, it's like close enough, but not like that idea of like, all right, well, if these people were really in to make the most amount of money, then what would they do to do that? You know? And so we just sort of started building the church that way and, and looking to see what other churches did and what a gemstone like. They're approaching this like a business, like they don't want to turn people away. They, they would strip away that symbolism that might turn people off. They would make sure that the rock show was just as good as a rock show you'd see at a, on a concert like they deliver a real show i think if the if what the gemstones deliver doesn't seem legitimate then it does make the world feel not legitimate because then it makes it like these 18,000 people that show up for the church service are all idiots you know what i mean that like so you have to make that like what the gemstones do they're actually good at and it justifies why they're so successful that speaks to a few other things I really like about the show, one of which is the sense of scale. I mean, this show has, uh, it's, it feels much bigger to me than the other shows you've done. And I'm curious, you know, I know it's HBO, but it's still a TV schedule and TV budget. How do you achieve that kind of scale given those resources? You know, it's very, very difficult. And like HBO has been great partners in this. They understand that the scale is part of what this show is about and that sort of uh, that affluence and that like ridiculousness and the way they spend that money. You can't do it on a nothing budget. And then it gets into just us being creative of like, you know, we instead of like, you know, there's not insane mansions all over Charleston. So the idea that they all live on a compound and then like that compound is created over like six different properties that we go through and, and create that. And so, you know, and then also so we're lucky enough we're shooting in Charleston the Coliseum here they're they're kind enough to let us use that as our church and so you know we're able to like go in there for 2 weeks and shoot everything that has to do with preaching during that time period and the other thing that that's very helpful is that we kind of shoot this schedule wise like it's a movie you know like we if we're in one location multiple times we go to that location and shoot everything out for it so Jody David myself any of the directors sometimes you might be directing in the morning and then handing the baton to the other guy in the afternoon you know so it's not the most ideal scenario, but it's like, you know, the fact that we all do collaborate and we work together and, and respect each other enough not to bone each other on those kind of days, that helps us be able to get a little more bang for our buck because we can, you know, we're not like returning to these massive sets multiple times during the season, but we can sweet talk them into letting us shoot there for two days. And then we just jam everything we can into the season in those two days, you know, and it's also just talks we've had with the, with Richard Wright and even with the style of the show of just making sure that we live in wides and we have that stuff as well that just gives that scope and just makes this behavior seem that much more silly when you see like what they've gotten from behaving this way. Yeah. I mean, do you feel that shooting that way, where you might be shooting something from episode three in the morning and episode six in the afternoon, is that difficult for you as an actor or for any of the other actors? I mean, that's, to me, I, I mean, I'm not an actor, so I don't know, but it seems to me like that would be really tough to keep everything in your head. I don't, I mean, it's definitely not ideal. The benefit you have when you go episode to episode is like you can create something in an episode that maybe wasn't there on the page and then you like it so much that you can call back to it in another episode and you have time to make that adjustment. So you definitely like lose that, you know, but Jeff Bradley and uh, John Kachuri, who are two of our other executive producers and two of my uh, main guys I write with, we just all live and breathe these scripts so much that it basically everyone just has to be at attention the whole time. You know, like when we're shooting something from episode six on day three, we need to like really we under these these guys understand the scripts as much as I do, and we kind of are alive and present to see like they added this thing in and that's great. Let's make sure we open up tonight this script and that script and apply it. You know, so. 
I think what happens when you do it that way is the scripts kind of stay open more because you kind of have to be evaluating the entire time of what you're getting and and how it affects other things when normally you would just be sort of motoring script by script. So it's definitely more difficult, but you know, it's all just becomes a whirlwind. You end up just adjusting to the pace of it and you end up just preparing the way you need to to achieve it. And what kinds of factors inform the decisions about who directs what episode? I mean, is there are there specific reasons why you might choose to direct an episode or choose to have Jody direct an episode or David? Like last season, I chose an episode just I went through the scripts and saw what episode I was in the least as an actor. And so then I chose to direct that. For Jody and David, it's, you know, I'm just fans. I love those guys, you know, some of my best friends, and I just love them as as artists as well. And like, I like their style. I like the kind of stuff they make. And so it is kind of fun when you're writing. Sometimes I'll think about the directors and think like, I want Green to get his hands on this episode, or this will be something I think Jody would have a lot of fun with. And so there's a little bit of that, of thinking about the director as we're writing it, you know, and so that's, I think, where you try to start. And then sometimes what ends up happening is it ends up getting dictated by schedule or, you know, unforeseen things. But there is definitely a level of like looking at the material and sort of like picking who you think is going to enjoy that the most. Well, and I want to ask you about your philosophy regarding casting because the cast on this show is just fantastic. And I love how, you know, there are some people who are very recognizable. You've got veterans like Eric Roberts coming in. You've got Walton Goggins, who's obviously regular member of your repertory company now, Eric Andre. That actress who plays Tiffany is unbelievable. I mean, she's hilarious. In terms of assembling a cast for something like this, I know this is kind of a ridiculously broad question, but what are, what are the kind of guiding principles in terms of what you look for in actors? I mean, you know, I feel like everybody in this show is so right for it. And there are people who I just sat back and like, like when Eric Roberts came on, on screen, I sat back and just relaxed. I thought, oh, this is going to be great. I'm so happy. I'm so glad to see Eric Roberts back in a great role like this. Ultimately, that's I want people to feel that way when they watch this show. I want you to feel I want you to enjoy yourself and have fun and relax. And I like I think it's fun to see some familiar faces or see people showing up doing something that they normally wouldn't do. I think the thing that we kind of gravitate towards the most is we look for actors that can be real more than we look for actors that can be funny. You know, it's like we always try to, in some cases, play down the joke because it makes it funnier. The more realistic, I mean, Walton is a is an expert at that. You know, like Walton can make a character as crazy as Baby Billy feel like where you like are concerned about him and you understand why he acts the way he does and he makes him feel fully three-dimensional. I feel like that that's what we look for is like we'll we'll sometimes start with like a stereotype or a caricature of like a sort of a comedic prototype. And then it's like about coming in and finding that nuance and finding out how to kind of like flip the stereotype and make them relatable or make them real. And so we look for actors who can do that. And then if you can do that and be funny, then you're you're golden, you know? And uh, that's what I think I responded to with Edie Patterson and Vice Principals. That's why I love Walton. It's why I love that we get the opportunity to work with John Goodman. It's, you know, it's these these people that really can, uh, they can do both, you know? And, and that's, that's, you know, useful. Sometimes when people are just funny, that's almost like more troublesome. You know what I mean? Because then you can get there on the day and you're like, shit, I'm not feeling anything. Like he's making me laugh, but I don't feel anything. And that's what you want to sort of avoid. Yeah. Well, I think you really pulled off what you were going for with Goggins and his character in terms of, like you say, I mean, he's sort of, he's first came on screen. I thought he was completely ridiculous and he behaves horribly. And yet I really was empathizing with this guy. I mean, every time he, every time he runs out on his family, you know, I'm kind of feeling, I'm kind of feeling for the guy. And in terms of caliber, I mean, do you find that 
is he just sort of instinctively bringing that correctly or is it something in the editing do you ever find that you have to kind of calibrate whether it's him or other performances you kind of have to calibrate how heightened it is because I could I would imagine some of these scenes depending on how you cut them you know they could be funnier or more poignant or more exaggerated you know it's a combo of both you know like Walton is very like Walton has very very incredible instincts Walton gets our writing he he always has even from vice principals I mean he he gets it. He understands like sort of the tightrope that we like to walk. So his understanding of that is goes a long way. And then, you know, what we do is like there definitely will be times where Walton will say like, you know, I want to give you something more than what's on this page. I want to go a little darker than maybe you were anticipating here and we'll let him do it, you know, and then we'll also get versions that are light and stuff. And he's willing to do all that stuff. And it's never a sort of like this one's for you or this one's for him. We know that in the cut, it can go any way. So I think from him working with us, he sees that as well, that like, you know what? We've cried enough. Let's do the version where we're laughing and just see how it plays. And uh, I think that's what's what I enjoy about when we shoot the show is that it is fun to see what's on the page and then to get in there with these actors and then see how it gets interpreted and see how you can play around with this material more and more. It's been a lot of fun. And... You know, something else about the performances on this show, I feel like sometimes with the smaller characters, with the day players, I'm not sure if the people who are in it are professional actors or if they're just somebody you found on the street somewhere in Charleston or something. And I'm wondering if you do use non-professionals sometimes in smaller roles. And if you do, how do you have to direct or handle them differently? And how do you sort of mesh them with the professional actors? We definitely use a combination of both, the professional and uh, and non-actors. You know, David Green, when we did the film George Washington, when he, when he directed that and we all worked on that, he was using all unprofessional actors. And he just has a knack for that. He has a knack for finding these, these voices and being able to draw something out. It's something he's just been good at always. And I've always admired it. I love when a performance like that comes through. And we'll, like, look at stuff like... Sugarland Express, an early Spielberg film, you know, and every background character feels like Texas and they feel they help sell the world. And so it's something we've always done, even from Eastbound. You know, we never when we first set Eastbound up, you know, the easy move would have been for us to shoot that in Burbank or something, you know, and it's like we're all living in L.A. We all had to, like, move our lives back to the East Coast to shoot that. But that was important to us because we wanted the world populated with people that made the world feel real and it makes the world feel like it actually exists and and as a point of view. And I think you get that flavor when you cast locally and you find the people that actually inhabit those places as opposed to people who are performing like people who inhabit that place. And do you find that, you know, I'm just curious in terms, like if you have people who are non-professionals acting opposite, again, a Walton Goggins or a John Goodman or whoever, I mean, do you think it gets something special out of the professionals too, responding to that kind of? Yeah, I do. I think, it, you know, it, that's what it seems like. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, you know, like sometimes it will. Sometimes somebody will have a little bit of a snap and it'll like keep everyone on their toes and sort of like, oh, that's like, uh, I wasn't expecting that, you know, and that's, that's part of what kind of goes into making the show, I guess, is that it is sort of like keeping ourselves on our toes and allowing us ourselves to be to face things that are unexpected and to kind of like see what we can do with it. It's interesting that you bring up Sugarland Express because it might sound weird to call this show Spielbergian. It has a similar sense of precision to the visual style where you feel like the places the camera is, it's like you were talking about the wide shots and things like that. The camera is always in the right place on this show. And I feel like sometimes with comedy, you know, there's this tendency to just, it's almost like 
people are afraid of the camera. It's like they, they think you're just supposed to, all you're doing is, is kind of capturing the performances. And with this show, I feel like the camera is kind of adding an, an additional dimension. Like I think about the episode with uh, BJ's baptism party and the compositions and the way the character, it's sort of like what you were saying earlier, the compositions and the way those characters are framed against the ludicrous extravagance is it's really funny and it's bringing something out that's not just on the page. And I know that you went to film school. I know you're a cinephile. I mean, is that important to you to like be constantly thinking about how you're going to use the camera to sort of add that additional layer? A hundred percent. I mean, like that's to me, it's like, you know, for comedies to not rely on visual storytelling, it seems like it's such a inherent advantage of making film or filming anything, you know, is that it's not a play. It's not, you know what I mean? It's not just there to look at this. I think why that comes sometimes is synonymous with comedy of like boring coverage or just letting it happen is I think it's when people aren't confident about the comedy and you want to give yourself as much options as you can in post so that if a joke doesn't work or if an audience doesn't like this, that you have the ability to get in there with scissors and like, and get rid of the stuff that, that drags or get in like, there's value to that. There's definitely value to being able to like really manipulate the pace and the jokes in a scene, you know, that way. But for me, I respond to the end product more when the visual style is fully realized and it doesn't feel like, uh, sometimes I think when the camera's just there and it's this person and that person, I feel like I can see through the improv. I can I can sense that I'm on a set watching people just riff, you know? And I think when it's uh, a little bit more designed, I think those riffs and that improv or the slip of the line, I think it kind of plays even funnier because it kind of is, you're watching it all unfold and directors are making choices that this is how it's happening and you're not it manipulating every single moment and every single pause in between a character's line. You're you're letting it play out for better or worse. Yeah, I mean, for me, I felt like when I watched the pilot episode, right from the first scene, I relaxed because that whole, that mass baptism scene, you know, just the way it was, because it, it was so clear that there was an intention behind the way it was shot. I kind of relaxed because I was like, okay, this filmmaker cares about me. Like, this is being directed by someone. And I actually didn't know you directed it until the end credits. But it was like, I just thought, like, whoever's directing this, they want the best for me. You know, and I kind of, <laughs> and I really appreciated that. But, you know, it seems to me like you, you've had kind of a unique opportunity in the sense that you started out wanting to be, to do what you're doing now, to be a writer-director, kind of fell into this acting career and then came back around to writing and directing. But you, by virtue of that, it's like you got to do things like Alien Covenant, where you're being directed by Ridley Scott, who's one of the greatest directors in the history of the medium. You know, what kind of things do you learn from an experience like that that you take with you to the, your own stuff? It, it, you know, it's it's been like the greatest education. It's been awesome. You know, like as someone who's just a fan of movies in general and just grew up devouring them, this opportunity to be able to like show up on, you know, Ridley Scott said or Cameron Crowe said and Greg Matola or any of these guys that I would have never imagined being able to meet, let alone work with and being able to spend days with them where you see how they operate and tips that they have in moments when they when an actor's not getting there or how they choose to cover a scene. And it's been awesome. I mean, it's been like indispensable and it's awesome just to see everyone is different and everyone has a different style there is no one way to do it and it's kind of, it is good to be able to have that opportunity to see varied styles and pick and choose what works for you and and, and what doesn't and uh yeah i think it just ends up making you a stronger filmmaker at the end of the day 
Well, something else I think is unique about your style is your approach to violence and action. Like, I love the stuff in Righteous Gemstones, you know, the biker, the ninja bikers or whatever they are, like that stuff. And like the way you stage that action scene at the end of the first episode in the parking lot and the way with cars are running over people and stuff. I mean, it's just, again, hilarious, very well designed. What is your kind of, for lack of a better word, philosophy about how to shoot something like that and how to stage violence? You know, I feel like the way whenever anyone has a gun in our stuff, it's like they never like really like know how to use it or they've like seen how it's used in movies or whatever. And so I like the idea of violence, like not landing with the sort of like action packed way you would imagine it. I like it like missing the mark and being sloppier or grosser or more disturbing than what you would imagine it being, you know, and like the the cool machismo way in your in your mind that we're sold violence. And so I think that sort of plays into this how we kind of deal with violence here. But the other thing is, you know, once again, it's like just using the format and using the the film medium. It's like, I want to like, feel like I saw it for real. You know, I want to like, that was like sort of the idea behind that one shot of, you know, at the end of the pilot of, uh, of Jesse running over those blackmailers at the end of the episode and sort of like having it in one shot where it goes back. It's like, I want to feel like I saw it for real. I don't want to, you know, when I was breaking that down and looking at cuts, I was just like, eh, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be the headlights coming. It's going to be this, it's going to be what, you know, it was going to be a whole night of work for something that just would be sort of pedestrian. And instead we designed this one shot that we got the whole sequence in like an hour and a half. It's fun. Sometimes you, uh, you know, with TV, you're not having as much time as you would have in a movie to do those things. Like we will get a scene like that and you have one night to shoot this whole entire thing. Something that like on a film you might have three days to do. And so I think you have to be really creative to make sure that the show doesn't just look like Dukes of Hazard every time like it gets into something crazy. And if you are going to make it look like Dukes of Hazard, you meant to, you know, but like making sure that like the action and stuff and any of that stuff doesn't just feel like we're trying to make it like something more than it is. And so sometimes that's embracing the ridiculousness of it and the idiocy of it. And sometimes it's like trying to be clever and think of how the audience can just see it unfiltered. How can this unravel in a wide in a way that like is disturbing and nails it and we don't need to spend a whole night covering every angle of this fight. Yeah, no, I thought it worked beautifully. I guess to, to wrap things up, I'm you know curious. I mentioned at the beginning of this, you know, that the show, and maybe this is a strange comparison too, but that it reminded me kind of of Dynasty or something. And it, it feels like something where you could go on with this for a long, long time. I mean, is it a show, do you kind of, how far ahead are you thinking here? I know you're working on the next season right now. Is this something, you know, could this be a Dynasty or Dallas kind of show where we follow this family saga for years and years and years? Or do you have a kind of end point in mind? You know, I have an endpoint in mind, and I guess it would just be sort of what everybody's appetite is. You know, if people watch the show, if HBO's into it uh, to do more, you know, but that was part of the idea of setting up an ensemble like this is that creatively, if you did want to keep going, there's more than enough material here to not tap the world out. I feel like on Eastbound, we had a blast writing that show, but because it just all centered around Kenny Powers and like his just his small circle of like allies, you know, by the fourth season, just as writers, we kind of found ourselves sort of being tapped out out of like, I mean, the next season is sending him to fucking outer space or something like, you know, you start <laughs> writing in that thing, not necessarily what's the best idea, but like, what have we not done before, which is like a slippery slope, I think, when you're when you're doing that, because seasons of TV are in essence sequels, you know, and so what you're doing is you're creating a sequel. And and then once you get so deep down it, you're not necessarily getting the best idea. You're just, yeah, you are asking yourself, like, what have we not done before? You know, and then you're doing that. The ensemble is appealing because there's just a lot more 
to play with. And the canvas is so different and you can shift focus into one character in a season and give the show an entirely different flavor than it had last season. And I like the promise of that. So we'll see if the audience follows. Yeah. I mean, I think this show is really well designed for what TV can do better than movies as opposed to, you know, sometimes you see series and it feels like, yeah, they want, they really wanted to do this as a movie, but they couldn't do it as a movie. This, and they, they stretched it out into six hours or eight hours or something like that. And I, and I feel like this one, it really plays to television strengths. And I guess my final question for you is, it's interesting to me that you came from that world of independent film and then acting in studio films and stuff. And now you really become kind of a TV guy. I guess, how do you feel about that? I mean, is TV something, have you come to prefer it? Is it just a matter of, oh, I go fiddle on the corner where they throw the coins? Is it, do you want to go back and write and direct features as well and alternate? I, I, I definitely would. You know, I felt like in the beginning, you know, when Jody and I made The Foot Fist Way together, that was a movie that, you know, we had a blast writing. We loved it. You know, it gets picked up by Paramount Vantage and it like, they test screen it and it scores like a 26. It isn't necessarily the kind of comedies that audiences were necessarily looking for in the box office, you know, like we kind of knew that our, our sensibilities and our tone was never going to survive the market marketing of a film if it has to go through test screenings. It's just too weird and, and just too left of center, I think. And so we kind of liked the idea that like it felt like in comedy, especially in cable, that you were allowed to take bigger risks than you necessarily were on the big screen. And so I think initially that sort of was the pull that like we wanted to tell our stories, but we didn't see that our work was going to necessarily compete with like what was out there, you know? And so the television world, it just felt like we could build an audience and that we could like everything wasn't going to be geared towards like whether everyone in the world showed up the first day, everything we make, we like the idea that it flies under the radar and that it's something that people share with their friends or something that they, you know, I like that. And so I felt like TV was allowing us to have that everything, especially with HBO, like everything wasn't about ratings. You know, we didn't have to worry if the marketing department was able to like sell our project in a way that like everyone showed up, like we could allow people to discover it and find it and share it with their friends. And then the next season, even more people show up to watch more of it. And yeah, it felt like it was conducive to the type of stuff we were wanting to tell. I mean, now I kind of get overwhelmed with TV. There's just so much of it. Like I get depressed when I go on a lot of the streamer apps and you see all these shows that all look great and they're all like in their fourth and fifth season. And I've never even heard of them before, you know, and I know how much work goes into these things and it's dispiriting. It definitely, you know, it feels like stuff doesn't get the time to shine that it used to get, you know, that like culturally you don't have that moment where like, oh, this was the thing that everyone saw right now. You know, there's so much competing for you that it is easy for things to sort of get lost, you know, and I don't know, maybe movies will be maybe somebody's going to like come in and kick movies ass and we can start getting back to having more original stuff in the theaters and people showing up for it again. But who knows? Maybe I just sound like an old man who's like living in the past and <laughs> thinking about how things used to be. <laughs> well, I uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. It's a great show, and I've loved getting to grill you about it. So uh, thanks so much, Danny. I really, uh, it's been great. Awesome. Have a great one. Thanks for doing this. Okay, my pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. For your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other categories, the HBO Max original series Peacemaker explores the origins of the character that John Cena first portrayed in The Suicide Squad, a compellingly vainglorious man who believes in peace at any cost, no matter how many people he has to kill to get it. The series stars John Cena as Peacemaker, Daniel Brooks as Adebayo, Freddie Stroma as Vigilante, Jennifer Holland as Harcourt, Steve Agee as Economist, Shakuti Awuji as Mern, and Robert Patrick as Augie Smith.
All episodes now streaming on HBO Max.